Hello, and welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And today we're talking about heteronomy and autonomy and one other type of onomy. I think you've already lost all of our listeners. Well. They're just like, oh, I, this is not the episode for me. Let's back it up. Let's do a little banter, Sally. Tell our listeners what we are reading through for Lent. I know I mean, you're reading a number of things, but I'm thinking of the thing that we're reading together. Yes. What are we reading? We are reading the complete short stories of Flannery O'Connor. Question for you. We have two editions of this. Um, I mean, they're actually virtually identical. They've just, they just basically have different covers. So the cover of this one that's sitting on my desk has three peacock feathers. Yes. She loved peacocks. Apparently she raised, I think she raised them. She owned them. them, yeah. Yeah. The cover of the one that you're reading has an entire peacock on the front. Which do you like? Which is your favorite cover? Uh, I think I like my cover better. I agree. Yeah. Your cover kind of looks like eyes. It does. It's a little creepy. It's a little scary. Yeah. Maybe that's more appropriate. It is maybe more appropriate because I have to say, I love these stories. I've not read the entire collection of short stories before. There are how many short stories, Sally? 30? 31. 31. And we're through four six. to six of them. I think yeah. you're through six. I'm through four. And I love them. Oh, man, they're so good. We were thinking about doing an episode on them. I think we're actually going to run that episode on Creedal Catholic. There's a lot to talk talk in there in, in many uh, theological themes. Uh, but yeah, we've really been enjoying our Flannery O'Connor reading. It's really good. Yeah. Hi- highly recommend. Yeah. it's it, They're not light reading, but they, they do go pretty quickly. I think Flannery is someone who, well, I don't think. I know Flannery is someone for whom I've had a growing appreciation over time. When I first read her work in college, it was A Good Man is Hard to Find, which is in this short story collection. And I, I just read it. And I remember my English teacher fawning over it. And I was thinking, what in the world did I just read? Yeah. Well, I think it ends with him saying she wasn't shot enough in her life. Like she wouldn't speak like that if she, was, she had been shot more during her life. Right. And you're just like, what? And when you're, I mean, when you're reading it as an ignorant college student, uh, I don't fault my teacher for this because he probably provided context that I didn't you know, hear or pay attention to, but I had no context for who Flannery was. Right. What, what she she's was trying, trying to, to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I read The Violent Bears It Away and I- same thing. Did not understand it. I don't remember <laughs> it, and I definitely need to read it again. Right, exactly. Um, but anyway, highly recommend these short stories. And I don't have a good way to segue into what we're talking about today, Sally. <laughs> uh, there's, I guess, some fantastical elements to sure. Flannery O'Connor, also, as well as it's, has to Salman do, Rushdie. Right. Yeah, that's true. And that's a better and segue. Both, both, uh, both authors... Talk about the kind of touch point between the divine and the human. Oh, there you go. Okay, that's a good segue. How about that? Yeah, well, let's, <laughs> let's go back and pretend that I did that. And we'll talk about Salman Rushdie. So I said we're going to talk about heteronomy, autonomy, and a different kind of onomy. We'll talk about all of that. But I will say the launching point for this discussion was, of course, sprung in the inimitable intellect of oh. Sally. <laughs> but Sally read this book called, oh, what is this called again, Sally? Yeah, it's called Two Years Eight months and twenty-eight nights, which I think translates to a thousand and one Arabian nights. I think that's where he gets the the influence. Wait, what's an Arabian night? Well, there's the 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 book Arabian Nights. Oh yeah, I believe, and I think that talks about. Okay, I don't actually know. So a thousand one nights <laughs> is two years, eight months, and twenty-eight nights. But okay. I think it harkens back to that. I'm not okay. entirely sure, but yeah, it's a novel, and he is known for 
many things, but including his satanic verses, which I believe put him on the hit list of jihadists. Yeah, there, there were several fatwas issued against Rushdie for his book. I think he published the book in 1988. It was a novel. He grew up in a Muslim household. Yes. And so he's responding to that and clearly very anti-Islam. I don't know the devotion of his household growing up. I think he has described it as a liberal Muslim household. So I, I'm speculating not strictly religiously observant, uh, but still raised in that sort of religious milieu, if you will. Now he identifies as a hardcore atheist, which is interesting. He's clearly a formidable intellect and has done a lot of thinking about serious things. And this came through in the book that you just read. Yeah, this is not just any novel. It uh, He weaves in his views on religion throughout, and he'll often depart from the storyline to kind of, yeah, add in his, his own perspective. Um, and to expand upon the relationships between the characters to tie it into his overall point that he's trying to make. But I'll read a synopsis from the New York Times because they'll do it better than I can. The central character of Rushdie's new novel is also a man who has been cursed and then gets blamed for it. Geronimo Menezes, and I don't know how to pronounce any of these names, a Mumbai-born gardener now living in New York has begun to levitate. I am, well, okay, so we just hold it right there. Yeah. So... I mean, this maybe maybe just a little disclaimer. This is a fantasy novel. Yes. Not in the sense of like Lord of the Rings, more in the sense of like mythological, right? Yes, but they kind of are more like superheroes in the 21st century. Okay. Because this takes place in the 21st century. Okay. So there's that element. There's this element of yeah. They they're it's kind of like these ancient. They but they live forever. So, so it's like Arabian folklore meets Marvel, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Well, I mean, I remember that as you were trying to explain various parts of the plot to me as you were reading it, I was just like, I have no idea what. Yeah. I can't keep track of all these things going on. Yeah. And it sounds, I don't know. I don't even know if interesting is the word that crossed my mind. It sounds bizarre. It is bizarre. Uh, yes. And it was only at the very it's end, very I think, with the benefit of hindsight, when you were communicating all this to me, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Now right. I maybe understand a little bit. So. Agreed. Yeah. I wasn't sure that I was glad I was reading it until the end when it kind of coalesced for me yeah but i am looking forward to hearing you pronounce all of these names <laughs> or maybe i'll just skip them <laughs> um so Hieronimo starts to levitate he starts to he's just like a half inch off the ground okay and he thinks oh that's weird <laughs> but then all these other weird things happen related to lightning and um he, like he's controlling lightning or no all these other people start to kind of have strange characteristics Powers. as a result of lightning striking okay and storms it. okay so he, but he isn't happy about levitating. Um, this isn't the wish fulfillment of a flying dream. This is back to the synopsis. It threatens his livelihood and brings the increasing hostility of strangers. People do not like him at all. Back to the synopsis. But Hieronimo's predicament is not an isolated case. This is what I was saying. It foreshadows an era of strangenesses, quote unquote. That's Rushdie's term. Where, quote, the laws which had long been accepted as the governing principles of reality had collapsed, unquote. The strangenesses, some meteorological, me, meteorological, some natural disasters, some simply miraculous, are the prelude to a full-blown full invasion of the human world by malevolent spirits from another dimension, and they're called jinn. So, right, so this is, yeah, J-I-N-N. And this is where we get the, Arab, the Arabian... Yeah, this is Arabian folklore. Yeah, or and, Persian folklore, yeah. I guess. Um, and I'm pretty sure even actually in Islamic theology, the jinn are fallen angels. Okay, I think so, he mentions that actually yeah, at the beginning so, because so it, Satan is mentioned as possibly one, one of, of the, the jinn. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, they're not necessarily bad, but they're the majority of them are at least selfish. 
because, for instance, they'll do anything to have sex. Now, contrary to, uh, for example, in Christian theology, angels are pure spirit. Jinn jin can be spirit and matter, right? They can take on the whatever human attributes they want to, okay. hence why they can have sex with each other. But they can take on... TMI. Thank you for that, Sally. <laughs> but it's a big part of the book. Sure, yeah. Um, but well, they, I mean, this does, this goes they can back, look like whoever they want to look like. I mean, all the way back to like Mesopotamian religions, there are these these kind of myths of um, gods, you know... Having uh, children with yeah, humans. Exactly. exactly. And that's how the book starts. Right. Because, well, we have these four evil jinn, and I guess I'll just try to say their names. Yeah, please. I'm looking forward Zavardast, to this. Zavardast, Zumarud, Raim, Blood Drinker, and Shining Ruby. I mean, Shining Ruby was a pretty easy pronunciation. And they're, they're male. <laughs> and they've broken through the wormholes, separating the world from fairyland, the human world from fairyland, and are bent on causing havoc in the 21st century. The only power that can stop them is a nice female jinnia called Dunia and her human descendants. And Hieronimo is one of her descendants. Hence why he can levitate. She has descendants because she... Um, years and years and years before married, became human-like and then married a famous Arabian or I guess Persian philosopher Okay, who was opposed Named to Salman a lot Rushdie. of the ideas of Islam. Yes, it, it's very similar. Okay, But yeah, he was opposed to a lot of the ideas of Islam. He didn't believe in God and the need for a religion and that fear actually of does God. sound semi-biographical. It does. Or autobiographical. Yeah, but this is many, many years in the future now. Okay. And But because she can pretty much live forever. It doesn't really matter. Okay. Um, and so now she's gathering the forces of her children whose characteristics are just starting to show. And well, they're not really her children anymore, but her great, 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 great grandchildren. And so that they can fight against the four evil jinn who are trying to take over the world who have been influenced by the first philosopher's rival philosopher, okay. who is very much more in line with what you would expect from an Islamic philosopher in terms of fear of God and authority and so okay. forth. Hopefully I'm saying all that, <laughs> giving him justice. So anyways, so she gathers up her human descendants and if Dunia can gather them up in time and awaken them to the power of their Jinni nature, humanity might have a chance against the forces of darkness. She tells Hieronimo, the seals between the two worlds are broken and the dark Jinn ride. Your world is in danger. And because my children are everywhere, I am protecting it. I'm bringing them together and together we will fight back. And that is the end of the synopsis. Wow. So for our listeners who have not already tuned out, uh, <laughs> Sally, this sounds like a super wild book. One yes, that I not would not normally one that I would read. I was gonna say this is not one that I don't think I would ever pick up, but Right. But if we get to the end, the last two pages, that's where it it, it I, I I realized more concretely what he was trying to do and I felt bad for him for Rushdie. Yeah. Um, it does, it, yeah. So we'll we'll get to that. I'll I'll cue that up to read it because you showed me the last two pages. I did not read the entirety of the book, but real quick. So she tries the what's her name Dunia. Dunia. Dunia tries to gather up all of her kind of descendants to battle the four evil jinn. Yeah. So that includes so Hieronimo is one of them, and levitating is not the only characteristic right. that they have. Like there's a do they have magic powers that they can use right. to defeat the jinn? So like there's a baby who shows up at the mayor's office and whoever holds her, if they are evil or corrupted in some way, they it's almost like they get leprosy. Wow. Yeah. But if they're not, then they're good. That's hardcore. And then there's also um, another woman who she goes, it seems like she goes after men who hurt women, but I forget what her skills are. Um, but yeah, she's one of them also. And then uh, I think 
yeah, there's a few other, I figure what some of the other powers are. And do Dunia and her progeny win at the end? They do. Yes. So they defeat the evil djinn. And this is, this is why I'm asking this because this kind of ties into the conclusion here. So they yes. defeat the evil djinn and seal off the two worlds, right? Right. She kind of, um, she gives up her humanness and kind of evaporates or like goes back into the void or something like that and somehow sacrifices herself so that the worlds can be sealed off. Okay. Got it. So sealed off. Now there is the kind of magic spirit world of the djinn and the material, material, rational, normal. empiricist world of the men. Yes. And that's where the mankind, yeah. the last two pages come in. Men, broadly speaking. Okay. Sounds good. So I'm looking at the last two pages. Instead of reading the entirety of the last two pages, I'm going to read what I think are the relevant excerpts. And if I miss something, then go ahead and, uh, and add it. All right. So Rusty writes, and, and who is, what's, who's the voice here at the end? Is this Dunia speaking? Um, no, I think this is just Rishti. Okay. So he says, But something befell us when the worlds were sealed off from each other. As the days lengthened into weeks, months, years, as the decades passed and the centuries, something that once happened to us all every night, every one of us, every member of the greater we, which we have all become, stopped happening. We no longer dreamt. Now in sleep there was only darkness. The mind fell dark so that the great theater of the night might begin its unforeseeable performances, but nothing came. Fewer and fewer of us in each successive generation retained the ability to dream until now we find ourselves in a time when dreams are things we would dream of if we could only dream. We read of you in ancient books, O oh dreams, but the dream factories are closed. This is the price we pay for peace, prosperity, understanding, wisdom, goodness, and truth, that the wildness in us which sleep unleashed has been tamed and the darkness in us which drove the theater of the night is soothed. We are happy. We find joy in all things, but the nights pass dumbly. One thousand and one nights may pass, but they pass in silence, like an army of ghosts, their footfalls noiseless, marching invisibly through the darkness, unheard, unseen, as we live and grow older and die. Mostly we are glad. Our lives are good. But sometimes we wish for the dreams to return. Sometimes, for we have not wholly rid ourselves of perversity, we long for nightmares." Isn't that chilling? It's so powerful. It's so powerful. So wow. I'm very glad that I read this book. But I, I just, I was just so struck by his, what a sad portrayal of the life that they had chosen as a result of sealing off the two worlds. And they had saved themselves. They had, they had won back reason and truth and goodness and, and, and yet they had also sacrificed. And he admits that. Yeah, so I mean, I think what he's saying here is that the price of all of these things, right? The price of, let me pull up the exact quote again. Yeah, peace, prosperity, understanding, wisdom, goodness, and truth. Right, all of that is, the, the price for all of that is shutting out the fantastical. Right, and I think our, in part, our human nature. Right, because it's natural for us to dream. right. It's natural for us to aspire to to make mistakes things. to hurt each other, right? So both our godlike aspects of human nature and our baser elements of the human nature have been have been eliminated by sealing off the two worlds, right? I think um, it, the one of the keys is is four paragraphs from the end when he talks about the wildness in us, right? So taming the wildness in us is the price of getting all those good things. Right. So to him, we have a dichotomy here. We have sort of like um, 
you know, what maybe Hobbes would call the state of nature, right? But that includes the wildness, that includes the possibility of error, that includes the possibility of recklessness. And yes, that does include dreams of fantasy. But on the other hand, we have this sort of um, controlled and rational side to our natures that in Rusty's telling, we can only really access if we shut down the other part of our natures. And that's what brings us, in his mind, joy. I think his, his use of the term joy is interesting because then he follows, you know, he follows it up with motor cars, electronics, dances, mountains, all of you bring us great joy. But if you think about what he just says, I mean, those things are not normally things that people think of as bringing them a great joy. Cars, electronics, dances, mountains. Uh, dances and mountains, maybe you can think of like that's interpersonal relationship, that's beauty in nature. But even so, I think most people would say that's not where true happiness lies. I mean, a dance ultimately is a superficial act, not a purely relational one. Um, and so I, I find his vision here a little bit bleak, but also I think telling because this is, uh, this is I think, one of the prices you pay of sort of shutting out uh, this, this idea of something outside of ourselves for which we are not totally responsible and which we cannot totally control. Which he would call, or um, this, this, the world that they have chosen by shutting all this off, he would call that a purely rational world. Right. Which is interesting too, because I wouldn't say that all those other things are irrational. Right. Or contrary to reason. No, not at all. Uh, but I think, you know, in his, in his telling, um, rational is equivalent to empirical. And so something that cannot be, something that is not strictly material, that cannot be rigorously tested and repeated, and something that neatly falls within all of the uh, confines of physics as we know it, um, all of that is equivalent to rational for him. Now, I mean, I think we can quibble with that definition. I think we would quibble with that definition. But ultimately, what, what, what we want to talk about in this discussion is hetero heteronomy and autonomy and, and theonomy. So heteronomy, just to back up a little bit and talk about those three terms, heteronomy is the idea that law comes from outside of us. Think of young children growing up, like our young kids now, uh, three kids, five and younger. We tell them when they can get up in the morning. We tell them when it's time for them to go to bed. We tell them what they're going to eat for that day. We tell them, at least in the cases of the two younger ones, what they're going to wear that day. You know, everything that our children do is done very, very clearly within the confines of what we tell them to do because we set those parameters for them. And we are totally outside of them. So that's, that's hetero heteronomy. Autonomy is something that Rusty's kind of holding up here, I think, at the end of this book. Um, not having something outside of yourself, but something that, that it can be governed, can be totally controlled, and something that is internal to you. So um, auto, self, uh, autonomy, uh, self-rule or self-governance. So autonomy, I think often held up as like the crowning virtue of human conduct today. We, again, would argue with that, uh, that sort of idea. But autonomy is the idea that you set your own rules. Now, you can think like it doesn't have to be bad. You can set responsible rules for yourself. And that's certainly true, but fundamentally autonomy is about setting your own rules. So where as a child grows up under a regime of heteronomy with their parents telling them everything and what, what is and is not allowed as that child transitions into puberty and young adulthood and eventually adulthood, they transition to autonomy. 
And so when you hear about a rebellious teenager who's acting out and getting tattoos or drinking because mom and dad say they can't, so they're going to show that they can and, and go ahead and embrace that uh, independence for themselves, that is autonomy at work. Now, again, autonomy is not always bad. People can choose to do good things even with autonomy. So the point is not that autonomy leads to moral bankruptcy in all cases. Yeah, because he... Um kind of shows two visions of autonomy a bit in his story by showing the the jinn right. who don't have anyone telling them what to do and their total lawlessness right. and selfishness. Right. And then when people choose autonomy for themselves and separate themselves from the 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 jinn world, then they they have some good in their world. I mean, he would say all goodness and truth. Right, and even the jinn, I mean, there's Dunia who's doing some good by trying to right. s- stop the bad jinn and then there's the bad jinn, right? But the the general problem is that there is there is sort of disagreement, right? That the people come to different terms. Given autonomy, people come to different conclusions about what is best for them. And so people have different ideas about what leads to human flourishing. And their ideas are, in many cases, divergent and mutually exclusive. So what I think might be good for my own flourishing is probably, or, or might be very different uh, and p- potentially at odds with what Sally views as what she needs to do to achieve human flourishing. That's the problem of autonomy. But there's this other third option. So, so I mean, I think, let me let me stop here. Rushdie sets up a, a binary, right? I mean, to him, it's it's either or. Like, either you have this, um, this coexistence with the spirit world, which I think we would consider a sort of heteronomy, right? Where the, the gods, small g gods, sort of impose a, a mode of existence on you that you can't control and, f- and that you don't, totally understand probably right but that you're required to you know if you're playing by their rules you're required to to play by their rules in order to um to live your life and the gods or god is malicious and wants you to fear him right and doesn't love you and doesn't care about your good right and then the the other option is the autonomy and so that's what happens when you when you seal off that world and so rusty i think as i understand the book from you sally and as i understand those last two pages the book's really kind of a lament about this like tension between heteronomy and autonomy on the one hand right who wants to be a, a slavish servant to a god to a god or gods who don't love them on the other hand um if we result or if we uh, resort to mere self-rule, we lose this capacity to dream. Like we lose this, yeah, to this, imagine. this sense of transcendence outside of ourselves. Yeah, and that lamenting tone doesn't really come until the end. So that's, I mean, that's kind of what, the whole time you're kind of thinking, okay, you know where this is going yeah. and you know what he's trying to say. But, but no. then at the <laughs> end, he just, there's that little bit of hint of sadness and regret. And I, I didn't wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I mean, based on what you told me about the book, I, I wasn't either. Um, and, but I think his binary is wrong. I mean, as he stated it, if those are the only two options, I think that is sad. Right. Right. Why do we have to choose between these two things? Right. And I think I'll say more about this in just a second, but I think his background growing up in a, in an Islamic family, I think his background might have something to do with his understanding of heteronomy of as options. he describes it now. Yeah. Right. I, so, I mean, I think, I think it stunted his view of, of God. For sure. So we talked about heteronomy, we talked about autonomy, and then the third option is what we would call theonomy. Theonomy, of course, theo, God, uh, theonomy, God's law or God's rule. So in a theonomy, the idea of theonomy is that you follow God's law. 
Now, you might pause very astutely and say, hold on a second, Zach. Isn't that the same, the same exact thing as heteronomy, right? Isn't that just heteronomy by another name? And my response to you is, yes, it certainly can be. And I think this is probably what Rushdie has experienced because um, the you know what Islam teaches about is about God sounds much more like heteronomy. Uh, there's this idea of divine command theory, and um, I think divine command theory is very prominent, as I understand it, in Islamic theology, that that God's God's word is to be obeyed unquestionably, and God's word is good because God said it. Yeah, and I think if you were taught, I don't know if this is accurate in islamic theology or not but if but if you were taught that god doesn't love you and doesn't want you to have a will or use your reason and just wants you to obey then then that would result in heteronomy regardless of whether or not that's actually what islam wants to convey yeah i mean i I think at least a sizable portion of islamic scholars would say no god does love us but it's certainly we don't feel it it's not up for debate (laughs) that the god of christianity loves much more fiercely than the God of Islam, right? And, uh, and when I say those things, I'm not, I'm not implying to uh, say that, that you know, Muslims are worshiping a, a different monotheistic God than Christians, but I'm saying that the ideas of God are, are divergent on that point for sure, right? Uh, how, how and to what degree God loves us. And so, um, yes, if you're saying that uh, that theonomy is just simply sort of blindly and unquestionably following God's law merely because of the fact that God says it, I think that is heteronomy, right? That's something totally outside of yourself. But if, on the other hand, you're talking about theonomy as following the law of God that springs from and is motivated by a relationship between God and creature, and that relationship is something that we would call love, that is something different. Because again, heteronomy is the idea that it is something totally outside of yourself, imposed on you for action and conduct. Theonomy, in this context, cannot be that because it it arises not simply totally from outside of yourself, but from an interaction between you and God, something that we would call love. Yeah, in a proper theonomy where God loves us, he wants us to choose him and he gives us the option to choose him or reject him. Yeah. So it's not it's not imposed in the same way it's, it's offered. Yeah. And I think there's this idea in Christian theology that's not intuitive, but it's there nonetheless. And I think it's also something that's, that's um, corroborated much more by experience than simply by, by reading. In other words, it's easier to understand through this, this truth through experience rather than, than through uh, intellect. Um, But the idea is simply this, that the service of God is freedom. Um, and it's, it is counterintuitive, but we have some quotes here from one of our favorite theologians who talks about exactly this. This is from, uh, at the time, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict XVI. He wrote in um, the work Theology, a Status Report, that revelation is the break-in of the living true God into our world, right? So, so think about the opposite of Rusty, right, where they closed off the, the portal between the worlds. Ratzinger is saying, no, revelation is the break-in of the living true God into our world. It liberates us from the jails of our theories, the bars of which try to protect us against the eruption of God into our life. The poverty of philosophy, that is the poverty into which positivist reason has thrown itself, has become the poverty of our faith. Think back to what we were saying about Salman Rushdie saying like, you know, to be rational is to be empiricist, or maybe I should have said positivist. And to be rational is to be free. Exactly. free of God. Right, so to Rushdie, the the equivalence is- Faith uh, and reason are completely- Right. 
They cannot coexist. Right. To Rusty, he says, positivism equals free. And Ratzinger says, no, God equals free. In fact, the great poverty of theology is that it's fallen prey to this complete positivism. And Ratzinger says, the latter, faith, cannot be liberated unless reason becomes open to what is new. If the door of metaphysical knowledge remains shut, if the boundaries of human knowledge as they were set by Kant cannot be crossed, then the faith can only waste away. It is short of breath. And in another uh, talk that he gave back in 2005, Ratzinger says, love is not dependence, but a gift that makes us live, which is kind of what I was trying to say when saying that he's offering this a choice to us. It's, a, it's a, He's offering himself to us. God is rather. Um, and so he's giving himself as a gift and giving his love as a gift. And the and con- to continue on, he says, the freedom of a human being is the freedom of a limited being and therefore is itself limited. We can possess it only as a shared freedom in the communion of freedom. Only if we live in the right way with one another and for one another can freedom develop. We live in the right way if we live in accordance with the truth of our being, and that is in accordance with God's will. For God's will is not a law for the human being imposed from the outside that constrains him, which is the the, fault, the wrong idea of theonomy. That would be heteronomy. That would be really, heteronomy, yeah. exactly. But rather, it's the intrinsic measure of his nature, a measure that is engraved within him and makes him the image of God, hence a free creature. So we are truly free. We are truly human and truly free human beings when we live in accordance with the law of God that we have chosen and that he gives us out of love. And that's completely different than autonomy and it's completely different from heteronomy. Yeah. So that last part you said about God making himself a gift. I mean, so Sally, you and I have talked on the podcast before about how we've, we've, been, we've been open about how we are Catholic. We weren't always Catholic, but there's a reason we are now. And I think one of the great insights here or the things that is so remarkable about Christianity is it has this idea of a God who is gift, who gives of himself. And if you contrast that with, with Rusty's idea, I mean, in his world, as make-believe as it may be, there's, you know, the world of sort of positivism and rationalism, and there's the world of the jinn. And what did the jinn do? At the, at the very best, I mean, think of Dunia, right? The very best are like entering into our world and sort of intermarrying and having offspring. Uh, at the very worst, they're evil jinn who are seeking our destruction. But contrast this with Christianity that posits there, you know, first of all, really posits that there isn't, uh, there's not this like two different worlds, but there is a God who is the source of all being and is love itself, himself, uh, who penetrates into our existence and offers himself for us. So rather than, than trying to gain access to us in order to destroy us or manipulate us or, you know, use us for his own pleasure. He actually wants to free us from our stunted human brains. <laughs> exactly. And he wants to, he wants to show us what to, what life needs to be like, what life should be like. Yeah. It's not an effort to simply constrain us. It's not an effort to prevent our advancement. It's an effort to help us see how we can most truly and fully live. Yeah. And if we turn our reason, open our reason up to this other relationship, that's not just man to man, then we can be more ourselves than we would be if we just allowed ourselves to be constrained by our own reason. And it's, it's the total opposite of, um, of Rushdie's vision, right? It's not about closing down the, your, your sort of walls to protect yourself in the form of defense. It's about opening yourself up and being vulnerable to a God who wants to love you and wants to give you himself. And this is where the counterintuitive part comes in again, because 
vulnerability, dependence, and service do not... They're not really virtues in modern society. Well, well they don't <laughs> seem to, to spell freedom. Right. No, not at all. And I think that's probably why they're not virtues in modern society because, you know, our... Just think about like the the American creed, the, the the first and most basic fundamental principle of America is freedom, uh, for better or worse. Uh, and you know, but that's everything that is seen to add to freedom is good. Everything that is seen to detract from freedom is bad. But it's a certain type of freedom, exactly. Certain understanding of freedom, right? And I wish that, yeah, I wish that we could talk about rush do about this with Rushdie. Well, let's invite him on. <laughs> Maybe we'll have him on soon. Okay, I think that's all, all that we have time for. We've already went way over time. I thought I thought we could do this in 20 minutes, and uh, we did not. So <laughs> Too many quotes. Too many quotes, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, if you have anything for us, Zach and Sally, Z-A-C and Sally, at vernacularpodcast.com. You can also follow us, facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast, or Instagram, Twitter, at vernacularpod. Until next time, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. You know that.